Hello, you're listening to Film Greys. I'm Emmett. I'm Sam. We're from the rock and roll band Phil Graves, and we're here to talk about cinema once again. Today, we're talking about one of our favourite living filmmakers. Yeah, a god among we the living, a king among Andersons. <laughs> He's better than Paul Thomas. He's better than Wes. He's about the same as Paul W.S. <laughs> it's Roy Anderson, yeah. maker of adverts and six features. Yeah, really interesting career spanning 60-year period from the late 60s when he was in film school, making sort of radical documentaries, made his first two features in the 70s. A big breakout hit followed by a huge film Modi, one of the biggest flops in Swedish cinema history. Yeah, then, as he said, moved into advertising, developed his craft, made over like 300 ads and... I guess for like generations of sort of European TV watchers, he was like a very important idiosyncratic voice. Definitely. Also made some banging short films and a trilogy of films called The Living Trilogy between 2000 and 2014. And his most recent film about endlessness came out this year. Yes. I think that was the last film you saw in the cinema? It was. Yeah, just it was before indeed. they closed. I saw it at the Genesis on a preview. It came out on the first Friday into lockdown two in England. Mm. But I believe it was available to see in cinemas in Northern Ireland and Scotland. Great. But it's available to watch on Curzon Home Cinema. Yeah, bit spenny. Yeah. (laughs) Also this year, a documentary about Roy Anderson and his production company, Studio 24, came out by a sort of British documentarian the man behind uh mumford and sons the road to red rocks fred scott his documentary um what's called being a human person being a human person yeah Uh, that's also available to like rent online and yeah it's a really interesting portrait of anderson and his team and the creative processes that go into these like astonishing films and we watched them all (laughs) We're extremely prepared. We watch the ones you're not supposed to watch. <laughs> yeah. We watched everything that has English subtitles and a couple things that don't. Yeah, I think I watched some of them backwards, watched some of them upside down. It was yeah. a great time. So one of the first things to note with Roy Anderson's films, especially his mature work, is this very unique visual style. Oh, yeah. Uh, very mannered. There are lots of components to it, so I'm actually just going to read this description. As with essays, I think paragraph quotations are the way to go, my friend. <laughs> yeah, well, it's about to happen. So, Swedish scholar Ursula Lindvist wrote this book-length study of his 2000 sort of comeback film, Songs from the Second Floor, and identifies his stylistic hallmarks thus. There's a fixed camera that does not move within a scene. <laughs> Wide-angled shots that frame human figures in their spaces. Long, simple takes for each scene. Studio sets that use trompe lie to give the perception of spatial depth. Minimalist and monochromatic set designs. An ensemble of amateur actors in white face. Sight gags and dramatic irony. Banal and truncated dialogue. A lethargic pace and a superstructure that edits together a series of thematically related vignettes in place of a single edited narrative. So true. 
Couldn't have put it better myself. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. I mean, I was trying to write down what makes up what Anderson calls the complex image, what he presents, uh, these very idiosyncratic frames. And yeah, there's such, it's such like a long list that, you know, I defer to, (laughs) yeah, the authority in this case. It's the case with everything he's done since the adverts in the 80s, though. Yeah, for sure. They were obviously an extremely formative point in his career and an opportunity for him to explore communicative and aesthetic techniques outside of the studio system. In 1981, he uh, bought a property in Stockholm, which has served as the production base for Studio 24. Mm -hmm. Since then, pretty much everything that you see in his films is shot in this studio and yeah, they the way they construct sets in there, it's like these silent film uh, sort of strategies for representing space, you know. Definitely. Trump lied, the crazy map paintings in the Fred. Sorry, in the, is it what is that, is that like Fred Scott? Fred Scott. In yeah. the documentary uh, that we watched, where he's in the studio, mm. and the camera pulls away. Anderson's camera is always static, pretty much always static. I think there are two instances in that, that we've identified. But otherwise, it's static. So it maintains this like visual illusion. One point perspective, as, yeah. as you have in real life. When the camera moves to show what these sets actually look like and the image is sort of exploded, mm. then it's, it's mad. It's all just like, like hanging bits of cardboard from the ceiling, like made to look to be like windows and stuff. And it's- the effect that Anderson achieves of this is astonishing. Like, they can do anything in that studio. It's true, it's true. It's a proper TARDIS in there. Because it's not a huge, not a huge place. It's just two shops opposite a pizza restaurant and like a sort of neighborhood, like inner city street. Yeah. But what a world of wonders Studio 24 is. Yeah, it's the great places. name as well. Very, uh, <laughs> very London uh, script. <laughs> I wonder if it's just like the street address or something. You I hope know. so. I hope so. Um, <laughs> Why did A24 call themselves that? The it's all about the frame rate, isn't it? Anyway, we're not talking about A24 today. <laughs> the places that he takes you to, all in Sweden, pretty much. Yeah, for sure. They're all vignettes, and they all yeah, situate you within a very specific cultural, socio-economic, slash political experience of you know modern alienation. That's what these films are about, mm-hmm. broadly. And, you know, a crisis in humanism and, like, moral sort of direction, the weight of history. But, yeah, he juxtaposes these, like, interesting questions with... Or he composes them through, like, juxtaposition with the banal, like, trivial things, like, the everyday. Absolutely. Which so captivated me when I first saw The Pigeon. I guess even when I came across the title of this film, I was like, oh, yeah, that... That sounds right up my street. I mean, it sounds like a Fiona Apple album, doesn't it? (laughs) A pigeon sat on a branch reflecting on existence. 2014. So that's the third film in this trilogy. It won the Golden Lion at Venice, Mm. like uh, the Joker. (laughs) And I don't know, I'd never seen anything like it when I first watched it. It just appealed to me so much, but... Was that soon? Yeah, it was like when it was out. Um, Saw it at the film house in Edinburgh, I think. Or maybe the cameo. Can't remember. (laughs) I was telling everyone about this shit, you know. Doing myself no favours by, like, doing this, you know. you got to see this yeah, film. It's just, yeah. like, 40 shots, and it's kind of about <laughs> these two, like, joke salesmen, but it's about existence, man, you know. But what a noble thing for a film to go after, you know. Yeah, 
You're right. I guess the main narrative strain in A Pigeon Sat on a Branch reflecting on existence is these two novelty item salesmen. You see them deliver their pitch across like a range of sort of bars and cafes in um, a sort of drab, traffic jam logged. Um, actually, this is no, more like not... barren, isn't it? Yeah the, yeah, the traffic jam is in songs from the second floor. And do you live in? <laughs> yeah. It is a recurrent theme, yeah. but um, yeah, you're right. It's more like ghostly this one, definitely. Um, and yeah, it's just everyone's about these... wearing white face, yeah, by yeah. the way, like painted, like to look like a ghost or like a zombie or. So um, these like extremely corpse-like figures are declaring to various people, oh, you know, we want to make people happy. And they sound so depressed. And, you know, they're like, (laughs) they've got like a laughing machine, like a sort of troll mask. And um, what's the other thing? Oh, vampire teeth. Vampire teeth. Like literally like shite commodities. Extra long. Yeah. Yeah, so we just see them deliver this pitch out of their suitcase to, like, various people. And, yeah, these scenes... Or, like, various, like... <laughs> Potential clients. Clients, yeah. They do the same pitch, like, four times in the movie, and it's just so funny, you know. <laughs> but there's more, yeah, that's not the story. No, you know? There's a... no story there, like, sort of, like, a vague, like, sort of guide through this world that he's constructing. And that's certainly not how I was sold the film, because I just you know from watching the trailer or whatever and like reading about it it does feel the way most people talk about these films is that they are just like total abstraction like vignettes like totally not related to each other but they all these the trilogy all do have a plot vaguely speaking vaguely speaking about endlessness is just total i think the drinking priest is the only thing that appears more than once yeah that in that one there is a narrative sort of line like the novelty salesman the you say the priest, he appears in numerous vignettes. But um, I guess the challenge is how do you reconcile that with like flashes of like historical memory yeah, or like other random trivial shit that he's juxtaposing it yeah. with? Because when you go to it, doesn't feel like you're watching a normal movie when you're watching these things as the scenes go from one thing to another. I guess the main comparison that like I would have drawn with my early encounters with this would be two of the last Bunuel films, like The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie and The Phantom of Liberty. They are actually more like The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, which does have a cast of characters going from one scene to the next, but they actually feel like The Phantom of Liberty more, which is just like random scenes or movie 43 or something like that. (laughs) No, but in those, okay, so in those Bunuel examples and Anderson um, in like an interview with uh, Ruben Ostland has said that like Bunuel was like, you know, that was like one of like two filmmakers he could like cite as like having an influence on his work. <laughs> uh, he talks about the bicycle thieves quite a lot as well. Yeah, he says every film is a remake of the bicycle thieves. <laughs> Spiritual sequel. Um, but yeah, it's he says it's that, all made in studios, yeah. <laughs> not shot on the street. These boomer films, even if they're sort of narratively disjunct, mm. it's all about the sort of thematic mm-hmm. consistencies and references, and like the sort of meta commentary and like the societal commentary on like you know the societal orders like the church and the state yeah. and like these like quite old-fashioned conceptions of um not social hierarchies but like yes. the orders you know quote marks and both these filmmakers are really good at actually making grander points about society which is something that's lost if you're trying to project these films just sort of like crazy funny 
uh, loose movies or whatever because they are so concrete in their analyses of society by using a totally different like filmmaking techers to like any other filmmaker really yeah 100 percent, man the social commentary is like so important in all of these as we get to them um or should we do you want to discuss that, that now yeah yeah okay so songs from the second floor the sort of comeback film i think we'll talk about a swedish love story in gilliap sort of separately later potentially but songs from the second floor that's about <laughs> a sort of neoliberal society failed entrepreneurs and it's got critiques of like it's it's hard to describe he cites this um jacques callot like 17th century print the horrors of war style thing um of the hanging a lot right it's the cover of his book our time's fear of seriousness it's in the documentary as well and he talks about it all the time god the amount of time i've had to spend with this etching or yeah 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 this is an image that like packs in like so much stuff at the center of it is a a hanging tree um and then around it all the sort of there's bishops and like you know um, like secular, like power brokers, and you know the women in their like little veils and shit, and like you know there are all these like sort of sectors and like all of these like sort of pillars of society uh, are targeted in in songs from the second floor. Mm. Very explicitly, they're made out to be like sort of um, corrupted, venal. The church and the state both get a bad rep in these films. I guess. Yeah, big time. You living is. <laughs> It's sort of different because I feel like there's less of a sort of institutional, um, direct institutional tax like that. Mm. It's, more it's more like... beneath the surface. In that yeah, it's, it's about like dreamers in, in like a listless, materialistic society. It's about alienation. Um, yeah. And about a band who, <laughs> the perfect embodiment <laughs> of that. Um, a band with no audience. Yeah, but I guess... It, Maybe you know, that's maybe why we mili- like this film. So. The military are targets in all of these films as well, mm. as, an, as an institution. Both and historically and contemporarily. Yeah, and A Pigeon Sat on a Branch. Yeah, again, all these institutional critiques are packed into it. There's the welfare state stuff as well, which is like so this important is, yeah. in informing um, his cri- social critique. Yeah, it's super important for Songs of the Second Floor, where the protagonist has his son committed and visits them in this asylum like numerous times. His son is a poet. who can't operate in a restrictive market-driven society. He's gone mad. Yeah, he's like Johannes in the Drea film Audet, although he he went mad from reading too much Thomas Aquinas or whatever. Very similar presence or whatever. And And his dad is constantly like, you got to get yourself out of here, like do something for the market, you know. Yeah, like, and his no dad's, one liked your poems, yeah. it wasn't making any money anyway. So, you know, the only cure, for, he, he doesn't get it at all. And his dad is a flop of a market operator. He's just had to commit insurance fraud on his failed furniture shop. And at the midpoint of the film, he buys into, it's a turn of the century, turn of the millennium yeah. film as well as turn of the century at the end for jesus's birthday he buys into this like sort of market fad of like buying crucifixes he meets the salesman like an expo yeah um in like a sort of like marge simpson with the pretzels (laughs) yeah yeah. (laughs) Um, and yeah he just ends up having to sell crucifixes and failing because you know (laughs) he gets them in all different (laughs) sizes but (laughs) yeah it's just all and ever present in these films and balancing yeah balancing these questions with like actual human existence you know on the ground in the kitchen trying to take shelter at a bus stop that's packed when it's raining Mm -hmm. or like you know these trivial things 
it's always the juxtaposition that like hammers home the message which i guess is born out of him making adverts right which are for everyone although there is a really funny quote where he's talking about how like oh most adverts i see just appeal to like the winners or whatever but i'm trying to make adverts that the common person can understand you know yeah well okay so i guess some of the most famous ads he made but in like the late 70s 80s around the time that he sort of started consolidating his creative independence mm. with the purchase of the studio space these ones for trig cancer this gandhi insurance company that are basically like small like very funny one-shot depictions of like things going wrong basically you like know a car falling into a ice yeah or like you, all, all sorts of hilarious shit and it's a very sort of universal silent comedy style form of communication yeah i'm sure they were screened all over you know yeah for... and they're all about like you know the losers in these situations <laughs> in the situations and the these Another one is uh, these lotto adverts that he did that are about this guy that keeps missing the numbers as they're read. He misses the read, yeah, yeah. These are just brilliant. I yeah, guess. yeah, they're so funny. They're so well done as well. I love the lotto, you know. Big, <laughs> yeah, nin- yeah, big yeah. 90s thing, you know, over there and over here. Mm. But yeah, these adverts are brilliant. He yeah. also did really good ones for the Swedish Social Democratic Party or the Labour Party over there. Yeah, that's a really important chapter in his career as well. And it ties to, uh, you know, his critiques of neoliberalism. This is the time when, like, Thatcher and Reagan had, like, really started devastating um, national industries. Mm. And the Social Democrats at the time, you know, were the alternative to, like... Creeping, insidious neoliberalism or whatever. Imagine if... Individualism. Imagine having a Labour Party that opposes that, you know. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's a very foreign concept at the moment. These party political broadcasts, as we were discussing earlier, they put Keir Starmer's uh, Labour Party ones to shame or whatever. I think you described that one as... You called it Keir Starmer's Scissored Isle. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) Which I thought was great. Yeah, Um, I sang it. (laughs) But these these ones are... Well, the 1985 one is called... Why should we care about each other? It's about a minute long, soundtrack by the the trash men, Bird is the Word, which, uh, yeah, precipitated the annoying nature of that song, the evil nature of that song, you know, very well. Starts with someone being pushed into a hospital ward on a stretcher, but they just sort of let them go, and it slides along and crashes into other beds, and then followed by other sort of nasty, cruel... Yeah. Things that demonstrate the sort of callousness, coldness... Um, individualism of modern society. It's a radical bit of political broadcasting, actually. Yeah. And, yeah, in the 1988 election, he followed it with another one with a similar name called Can We Care About Each Other? Mm. Which is, you know... These are the questions that preoccupy him, his work. This one is even more radical. It's just people from lots of different sort of social classes and professions... um, looking directly into the camera and being like, uh, this is what I want. Like, I want a man or, like, a yacht mm. or, like, you know, lots of, like, different, like, aspirations. And, like, <sighs> there are some things that, like, good governance can solve. And there are some, you know... It confronts these questions in, like, a very interesting way. But as it's, well as being, like, politically lit, yeah. like, and attuned to adverts from 35 years ago you can watch today and feel that yeah the the comments on them are like you know i can't believe this is a sdp like ad like right what like were they like 
radical or like you know that but that is the trajectory of politics the snuffing out of alternatives by yeah i I mean we don't no definitely no this is this is it you know people who fetishize the nordic model in this country should uh, take a look at the work of roy anderson well for sure because i mean he really problematizes it's corruption yeah. by the forces of neoliberalism in these films. And these adverts are like, yeah, a really interesting time capsule as well. It's mad to be saying adverts are art, but yeah, it's I think mad. in this one example, and maybe the Hitchcock trailer I was talking about last <laughs> episode, but no, this is the only example. They literally are like... I think they, are, they, they tap into like a universal comedic language and these political ones are obviously, you know, very interesting. But... Yeah, I think the technique he used here and the aesthetic really contributed to the sort of maturation of his style as demonstrated in his subsequent four feature films. Yeah, it ticks all the boxes from that quote you read from Lindqvist. Yeah, 100%. Pretty much. Maybe. The static camera, the sort of action unfolding, no cuts, you know, a bit of the old white face. And, the, <laughs> and just the tone as well. Yeah, you the know. irony, the yeah. humour, the blackness, the... These things like universality his, as well. His films are all the time as tragic as they are funny in a way that I can't really say about many other people's work that I can think of, really. You're looking at two sides of the coin all the time by looking at a fixed image with no editing, you know. Yeah. It's well, yeah. unbelievable what he does. Yeah, and it's really confrontational. I think that's really important, actually, because it's always about these, like, collisions of, like, the trivial and, like, I don't know what the word is, the monumental or the... The, the serious. The historical. Yeah, the okay. serious. He wrote a book called uh, In Praise of Serious. Our Times Fear of Serious. Our Times Fear of Serious. Yeah, a serious oh. monograph, not translated into English. Sadly, um, we're going to have to learn Swedish for that one. Yeah, an excerpt of it has been translated into English for this anthology that came out um, like 10 years ago. Would you care um, to quote a paragraph? I'd love to. Um, so he mainly talks about the development of his aesthetic approach here. Um, and what he calls that's the thing like it's always about like the mix between aesthetics and like the theory or like the the background like the idea here like they're they're constantly interlinked because like we were literally just talking about the complex image is a term that was invented by Bazin and I guess he was mostly talking about deep focus cinematography and staging talking about the films of Jean Renoir who's obviously I guess a sort of influence broadly speaking on Anderson in the way that I mean, he's one of my favorite filmmakers I can't wait to talk about Renoir for years on film grade but just quickly I mean he's obviously the son of the painter but his work isn't that similar to his father but he was really interested in capturing the influence of painting yeah. on cinema and like continuing the trajectory of cinema and the moving image yeah. as being influenced by painting yeah you say the same about Peter Greenaway and you could also definitely say the same about this guy there are loads of specific examples to cite of paintings that Anderson is influenced by. But just the whole thing is like, you know. 100%. And to go slightly expand on that even, as important as painting is, um, I think uh, Lindquist uses the idea of intermediality, a sort of interdisciplinary creative approach that encompasses not just painting, but also the stage, poetry, mm-hmm. um, literature, photography, you know, prints, all, all sorts of uh, art forms, you know. It's like utterly synthetic. Mm. And yeah, he describes this 
this approach. Oh, one of the main things that emerges in this excerpt is how much he abhors the close-up. Like, he utterly rejects it. He says, according to me, one gets less information about a person the closer you come to him or her. In the end, one cannot even distinguish a human eye from that of a cow, or even a dead cow, which is clearly illustrated in Boonwell's In Chen and the Loop. Of course. But also his ideas about uh, editing, he says, for example, I can find no reason to communicate something in several images if it can be done in one. Mm. He's all about trying to communicate as much as possible in a single image. And even that technical exegesis is still just as tied to the sort of philosophical nature of it as well, because there's this quote, I think it's in that passage as well, and he says it in the documentary being a human person about how like you learn more from a person from the room that they're in than the expression on their face he'd love to say that yeah definitely which uh you aren't really asked to think about most of the time no for sure but it really differentiates itself from um conventional filmmaking because it really does confront you with these like single images and that also brings up like an interesting relationship with time because we see scenes play out in real time mm. which often stresses the sort of emptiness of time or the you know the texture of boredom or yeah all these things um i was watching uh no monologue peep show clips which is really weird because you don't realize how much of that show is structured by or how much of the time in that is structured by like things that the characters can't they're not actually communicating like it's being like mediated you know but they're just standing there and like it's awkward and that's what these films are like you know the use of time is like so idiosyncratic and challenging you know some of these shots are really long some of the sequences are really long the other one and i've been itching to press the button the whole time yeah, yeah, on this on this episode and on pretty much all the film grades but playtime one of the best films ever made by jacques tati from 1968 huge flop but I guess all of Tati's work as well, but Playtime specifically, I think, because the set design is such a huge part of it. And it's also a film about, like, modern life, modern urban alienation. Yeah. But that film is just an unbelievable watch. Your eye, you have to look all around the frame the whole time. Fixed camera the whole time. It does have a loose plot, but it's incredibly loose. I guess uh, Tati's mistake. Well, not mistake, because it's the best film of all time. But fiscally, his mistake was the fact that uh, he didn't make it in a little shop studio using Trump lawyer effects. He used enormous, enormous sets, the biggest sets in French history or whatever. Sam, you got to watch it. It's the fucking shit. Yeah, I feel, I've only seen scenes from it. I feel like I've seen it, but I mean, it's obviously a whole other experience actually watching the shit play out. You know? um, you've got to watch it like 10 times to see, <laughs> to see it. Yeah. I'm going to take something new out of it every time because you're, there's so much going on in the frame, even in the set design. That's what the complex image is. Yeah, that yeah, is, yeah. It's not a cryptic concept, you know. I guess it's meant to be, like, open and available and, like, disclose itself to you, but it is sort of challenging at the same time. And to a eyes. certain extent. And people always say about Playtime, like, you've got to see it, like, projected. And, like, I've seen two of these about endlessness and a pigeon in the cinema. Um, the trilogy, You the Living, Songs from the Second Floor and The Pigeon Town of Branch had a sold-out run at Curzon Bloomsbury recently i think they screened them all three times but couldn't get a ticket couldn't Fair afford enough. it even if it wasn't sold out but i mean there's a huge appetite for this sort of art like that is what it is yeah but you need to see it in the cinema for you know you need to have a big old fucking 
I haven't seen any of them in the cinema. No, of course. And you can watch them at home and like appreciate and love it. But like, it's for the cinema, you know. You can, you're, you're not being told where to look. So look around. In the late 80s to early 90s, he made two slightly longer form pieces of work. Something Happened from 1987. Yeah. And World of Glory from 1991. I've only seen the latter. It's really worth watching. Yeah, I think Something Happened is only available on a sort of compilation of some of his early works on DVD. And um, I couldn't find it. I think potentially out of print even. Uh, you can watch like bits of it. I saw a couple of bits in the uh, in the documentary, yeah. but when you're showing like three seconds out of like, I had this problem with the Swans documentary recently, where it's like you're only watching like the ten loudest seconds of a twenty minute long song or whatever, not really getting the point. But I did get to see some mad images from something happened in this documentary. Yeah, it's twenty four minutes long. About half of it in various parts is on YouTube. Or other streaming sites. It's interesting. It was sort of commissioned by the Swedish National Board of Health and Welfare. Or he was approached by them to make an information film about AIDS. And he basically came out with this mad indictment of sort of scientific institutions. And scientists as like a sort of evil wing of like... The CIA. Yeah. Which is something you hear all the time. And it is a fringe belief, but it's not... The first time I've come across this suggestion before. Yeah, whatever. Roy in um, late 80s conspiratorial mode, though, very much so. But yeah, neither of us have seen this And one. he wrote a whole... Oh yeah, he wrote like a sort of 10-page um, response to like a, a letter uh, published by a sort of Swedish um, state health minister, which basically... Um, yeah. I'm backing it, though. It's food for thought. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting stuff. But yeah, World of Glory, you can watch in full online. And this is a crazy piece of work. They made it in 1990 for this. Uh... It's called 90 Minutes in the 1990s, one of these sort of anthology films. And it was kind of his cinematic re-debut after a very, very long amount of time. And it's the first segment. So the first image you see in this film, which is one of the most harrowing images I've ever seen, is the start of this like anthology piece about what Swedish cinema is like. <laughs> God. Yeah, it's an what astonishing... the 90s are like. Which yeah, yeah. It's instructive. It's an astonishing treatment of sort of historical memory, sort of existential guilt, a theme that he returns to quite a lot and is obviously preoccupied with. He talks about Martin Buber quite a lot. Mm-hmm. And yeah, this first shot shows a sort of crowd of men and women in suits standing in like a sports field watching a naked child be pushed onto the back of a truck that's already full of like sort of naked prisoners mm-hmm. captives um they shut it and they they gas them and then a man at the front turns around and looks directly into the camera and then the rest of the film is this guy shot in Anderson's sort of idiosyncratic static style this ashen-faced sort of middle-aged guy just like being like this is my bedroom this is where i go to sleep this is like my nice car yes yeah. it is a horrific treatment of the holocaust and there's so many ethical questions about like 
how to represent this sort of thing. And his treatment of these kinds of images, we'll talk about this later, people may have problems with it, but the way that it's used in this film to foreground this man's like banal urban life is very purposeful. Confrontational and shocking. Yeah, 100%. I think it's worth illuminating at some point some um, counterparts across his filmography, mm -hmm. actually. There's more sort of genocidal slaughter scenes coming up, folks. Yeah, so in Songs from the Second Floor, the feature film he returned with, the film he made after World of Glory, sometimes they're just in the scene and sometimes they're sort of slippages in time, sometimes they're cutaways to like sort of different points in history. Yeah, we meet a hundred-year-old Nazi collaborator who's like one of the biggest landowners in Sweden and like he's like completely inarticulate now and lives in a sort of cage and mm -hmm. is like you know, tended to 24-7 by maids who help him use a chamber pop. He's introduced at his birthday party where he's asking about how Goering is or whatever, in yeah. case you didn't realise that we're still living in this era. Yeah, I guess yeah exactly. Um, he cites, like, Lukács and his mm -hmm. writing and in an interview cites George Lukács as saying, you know... Um, Patron saint of the podcast. Yeah, the, the preconditions for fascism in society, modern society... Mm -hmm have not been resolved, you know. We still live in the sort of superstructure which facilitates those sort of political moments, you know. Yeah, we're still living in the era. Um, yeah. And if you can't, if it's not reconciled, shout out yeah. them guys, yeah. um, then you're still living in the era and you can't yeah. move past it. And it's also instructive to note that the far right, the fash were really on the rise in Sweden at the time he was making these films in the 90s specifically. And... You see how Europe before our eyes is sliding into, you know, fascism all over the place. And also, um, I think it's important to not, you know, Sweden was like, a hit. I guess the story we're told about Sweden is that it was neutral yeah. in World War Two, But it's a bit more complex than that. Yeah, and that's something Roy has been at the vanguard of confronting both in his films and in his wider work. Yeah. Um, in 2006, he produced an exhibition in cooperation with the, what's it called, the Forum for Living History, I think, mm -hmm. in um, Stockholm or somewhere in Sweden, um, uh, called Sweden and the Holocaust, which um, does not mince its words in indicting Sweden as you know, not only a collaborator, but a sort of active facilitator of atrocity yeah for sure and it's impossible to escape this when you're watching the films and there are more instances throughout his films and in you the living a film sort of populated by dream sequences that are, are juxtaposed with these like very quotidian uh, moments mm. one of them a guy stuck in a traffic jam rolling across the screen he looks to the camera and he says i had a horrible dream last night we entered a dream we the recreation of the dream. I always said this is the funniest thing ever anyway. Yeah. Not this specific moment, but what it's representing. Maybe not the bitter punchline, but yeah. just the image is um, the funniest shit Basically, ever he's like, oh, I um, broke this like family's like tableware and like they put me to death. Like they electrocuted me. Guess how he did it, folks. He did, <laughs> he did the fucking tablecloth trick. And yeah. it's like three plates for every place setting, like loads of cutlery, like candelabras. And yeah, inlaid in the wooden table are two like huge swastikas. And, you know, that's a pretty hilarious, like sort of confrontation or like invocation of like 
corruption and like these bourgeois social orders in Sweden. Very necessary image. And that's something I didn't even clock the first time I'd seen. Like, this is why, you know, you can't watch this film on your phone because you wouldn't even see that. You'd still have a hilarious time watching all the cutlery come down or whatever and the croc- <laughs> and the crockery as well. There are more, and not just the, the Holocaust and like the legacy or like the historical weight of fascism in Europe. It deals with um, sort of African colonialism. There's a shocking moment towards the end of a pigeon sat on a branch where um, a tr- sort of trail of sort of captive indigenous Africans are sort of led into this like rotating metal contraption that has like the the name of like a Swedish like metals company like uh, written across it and it's like some weird like musical instrument there are all these colonial troops standing around and it's like horrible and they're burnt alive like it's a truly shocking moment that's also presented as like a scary dream that a character has I mean it's straight out of Gravity's Rainbow but it's also horrendous and that's right at the end of the third film and just a few examples like just to hammer home like there really is stuff in every film let's acknowledge them all yeah yeah well one more from songs from the second floor this is a really mad sequence where um the main character in what i refer to as like sort of slippage in time Mm. is confronted by this like ghost of like a young russian kid who was executed by the lithuanian ss um in minsk alongside uh a girl and it's a sort of recreation of like a real photograph that is horrendous with the kid following him around yeah it's yeah. uh it's like really in the subway and literally stuff. haunting and that's one of the only tracking shots in his oeuvre as well and in about endlessness a film which i think is actually totally very different to, mm-hmm. the, to the rest of these or it's sort of humanism is in a slightly different register maybe there's a sort of cutaway after like a sort of very trivial like sort of cafe sequence where a man goes in looking for someone that's not there. It's nothing and it's like a sort of human moment. It's a cutaway to like a sort of um uh, like sort of juny beach sort of alcove and like so someone's being executed like he's he's uh, not even being executed, he's just tied up there and then left to hang as they all leave him behind or it's crazy. Is that what happened? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's just like shouting, like, come back, come back, like, let me down or whatever. It's mad. And he, yeah, he goes full Hitler in About Endlessness as well with a um, a sort of bunker sequence at the sort of end of the Third Reich and the sort of nominal crumbling of, like, fascism. Yeah. And, yeah, that's an interesting scene. There were, like, Rembrandts on the wall. It's all a bit on the nose. But I actually you, didn't you, like that sequence. You didn't I like it that it much? Like, not as subtle as, like, some of the other treatments of historical memory in his work. But Sure, I guess it's the, the downfall speech moment or yeah. whatever. But I think for that film, which is a way more passive film in tone, maybe, that's immediately preceded by a scene of two students talking about thermodynamics, and they bring up, you know, they with the title drop, you know. Yeah where they're talking about endlessness. Yeah. And the legacy of fascism still permeates yeah, of in course. the world we live in right now. This yeah, is the yeah, point yeah. he's making again yeah. and again, yeah, yeah. which is more than you can say for one of his great Swedish filmmaking antecedents in Ingmar Bergman, someone who gets a bit of a rough ride in the Lindqvist book, I hear. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, although he was very complimentary about Anderson's work and his commercials. But Ingmar Bergman never really talked about this kind of stuff. And you think he would have found some time to in the... 70-ish features he made in Sweden. Um, He made The Serpent's Egg outside of Sweden, which is set in Weimar, Germany. And also there's a really good documentary about 1957 for Bergman, the year he made Wild Strawberries and The Seventh Seal that came out in cinemas last year. But that had a pretty 
staggering moment for me where they were talking about what was Ingmar Bergman up to when he was a teenager during World War II in Sweden. Was he a Nazi? Something he never talked about in his own uh, diaries. Mm. And he did, you know, write diaries extensively, but this was totally not reconciled for him. He didn't, he was totally unacknowledged by, you know, the big daddy of Swedish cinema or whatever. And yeah, for Anderson, it's the, obviously the complete extreme, both on a sort of technical and moral level. He's fully trying to confront the legacy, the ongoing memory and trauma of these, these things. And I guess, inter- like, and not from, like, the losing side either. Like, mm. so there's, like, a sort of, you know, because they're, in theory, neutral, yeah. I guess for Bergman, there was nothing to reconcile. But now for Anderson, like, it has to be confrontational. And, you know, the Hitler scene in, in About Endlessness is the sort of logical extension of that. I, I guess I just thought it was a bit less subtle. Than he also has a, a Christ being crucified sequence in the same film, in a, dropped in a similarly disjointed way. So, you know, he's really talking about the big topics here. But I think <laughs> we talked about fascism for a solid 15 minutes now or whatever. But I commend this man for putting it in his filmography and taking it seriously. And it's not the only thing that he achieves in any of these images or whatever. There's so much more going on as well as this. Just one more sort of final point on that then. I guess revisionist history is a sort of dirty term because people associate it with like Holocaust deniers, stuff like that, right? But his work goes in the opposite direction because it's revising like a sort of complacency and challenging Swedes and international audiences to contemplate their nation's like role in... Yeah, it's all... It's all well and good for Quentin Tarantino to shoot Hitler in the face, but you know, can you really say that like there's no danger of a far right ascendancy in like America and you know, and no, also all right. and, <laughs> and how can you even make a postmodern work like Inglorious Bastards? Even that is to suggest that you're like after that, you know. Even if you may consider, you know, oh the horrors of World War Two, like how will we must we got to live in a world to like never let anything as awful or evil happen again but that's arguably not the intent behind a lot of the architects of postmodern society it's important to note that spoiler alert for this 12 minute art film world of glory ends with the same man who's just like narrated his banal existence presented it to you while looking you in the eye he has another one of these horrible dreams like the dreams we're about to talk about where he hears like a distant screaming voice but it's pretty loud in the mix even though the staging gives a lot more space he says oh i've just woken up from a horrible dream i can't tell if this screaming is like from my dream or in the real world he's totally divorced from the sequence that he was in at the start of the film in the same way that you know with the arrangement of the images like you can't forget that and it colors your whole viewing of the film from your perspective but he does his best to ignore it god it's such a deep film actually world of glory like but i'd really recommend it in the same way you know that I guess we've other filmmakers that we've looked at their early work, their sort of formative work like this, like Bong and Kleber Mendonca. I feel like World of Glory really fits within that sort of instructive framework that if you want to try and, you know, I feel like it's a sort of a key almost to like some of these later works. Sure, like in Incoherence. Incoherence and, you know. um, Cold Tropics. Yeah. Nice. That's a triple bill. Yeah, it really is. Oh, that would be dope.
So I think we'll spend a bit of time now talking about the trilogy, which is probably the sort of central body of work about endlessness we'll talk about in a bit, but that's more of a compliment to these films, I think, or a sort of consolidation of their themes. Well, in Don't pi- dispute me now, we'll talk about it later. <laughs> in, in Pigeon, it says in the opening titles, the third part of a trilogy, although the first two aren't marked out thusly. Is that right? Yeah. Fair. Okay. It does make sense because sometimes when I just remember like little bits of sequences or little bits of scenes, sequences of irrelevant word in this episode, when I remember bits of scenes from these films, sometimes I have a hard time remembering which one they're in because it is a grand piece of work. Yeah. Much like uh, another big antecedent precedent. I guess it was going on around the same time as this. The scary movie quadrilogy. Um, I think they have a similar logic. You know, sometimes they can feel, if when you're describing them a little bit, this really jokes bit where this happens and it's like yeah. this painting. You need to think like, oh yeah, were they still parodying Scream in like 2012 or some shit? Um, it's, it's like scary movie, <laughs> date movie, meet the Spartans, but they're spoofing the modern world. I think like those films, which obviously have a very uh, coherent like aesthetic, uh, very like sort of Hollywoody, like flashy post two thousands aesthetic. Music these, to my these ears. films also have a very unified, as we've discussed, um, sort of technical approach. You know, born of the fact that they're all made in a studio, bar like one or two scenes. But even in those exteriors, they sort of manipulate the landscape and sort of bend it to their will using like matte backgrounds and God, you know, all this stuff. There's one in Songs from the Second Floor, an airport sequence where there's people, you know, dragging insane amounts of luggage. All the like bosses are like leaving basically after like firing people and they're all going off to like leave for winter. It looks bigger than the check-in at Heathrow Airport or whatever. It's vast, cavernous and there's loads of people. I don't... do not understand how they shot this sequence. I mean, you were talking about playtime earlier and that I did that like sense of like depth in the frame and just like this like cold, very modern like sort of architecture that just sort of like seems to go on and on in a like very beige way as well. But it's enormous and it was shot in about a room about twice the size of the one we're recording this <laughs> cubic. It's a pretty big room. It's just a, a, a huge technical achievement because it just looks so real. Or so convincing. Or even if you are aware of the artifice, it's extremely immersive and convincing. Well, the one lesson I learned in, you know, three years of doing art at school, hated every minute. But I do remember learning the one-point perspective diagram. So it should be quite straightforward. But watching these films, I still don't get it. (laughs) I don't understand. Well, the fixed point helps. Or rather, the fixed point is utterly essential. (laughs) But yeah, just the illusion of like an abyss of, of depth. A mise on a beam. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly so. And that's just astonishing. And there are so many examples of that in his films. Some of them are just mind-boggling to visualise. So one of my favourite ones is in A Pigeon Sat on a Branch, where Edward Hopper, the American um, sort of urban painter... Such a key figure in this whole thing. Um, yeah, he's cited quite a lot, um, but, you know, the link is, like, clear. It's very much so that vibe of, like, sort of urban alienation, like, cool tones and, like... Dimly lit bars of people drinking by themselves. Yeah, yeah. And so... The novelty salesman in A Pigeon, um, they go to this, like, bar and outskirts, like, in the middle of the frame, along the sort of horizon of the frame, at the sort of midway point, there's, like, uh, a window going along, like, the bar front that we're looking at. The back is, like, half, like, um, buildings and then half, like, sort of wasteland, right? So much depth in this frame. And then 
it's just insane. This is like another like collision of sort of historical memory and like, you know, the weight of history or like cultural memory and like the everyday because the sales manager is in his bar like talking to a bunch of sort of randoms. And it's then a real a gu- ready player one. Yeah. <laughs> and then a guy rides in on a horse from the street in the background and the guy's and, like, get him some sparkling yeah. water. <laughs> and he's like, he like kicks out all the women from the bar. And then like a big procession of troops come in the background. The King Charles Twelfth comes. It goes on for about um, 10 minutes. It's a really year. long shot. It's just... Uh, Charles Twelfth from the 17th century? Yeah, it was like late 17th, early 18th century. And I think he was like a bit of a King John sort of figure, yeah, I think. Right, okay, um, yeah. Because there's a sort of second scene where they come back the other way. And rather than being, you know, all pomp and in their like regalia and shit are all like tattered like the miseries of war sort of images the composition's the same but they're just coming from the other direction and the barman just keeps repeating this like sort of platitude about like territorial losses under charles the 12th and like i guess it's like a song lyric or something like that right yeah it's just got so much going on they're amazing to bear witness to as well as what they have to say yeah. but there are just so many I think You the Living, I think it's a very romantic film. It's so seeped in like dreams. Mm-hmm. You know, it's about people being dreamers as a sort of escape from their loneliness or market alienation. Even just like the boringness of their life, as you said earlier. It's a classic um, boring part two of the trilogy. You know? Yeah. There's a dream sequence in this one, which is probably my favourite sequence in this film, where um, there's like a young woman who's like drinking in the bars alone. And then, I don't know, two thirds of the way through the film, it's last orders again, like they're ringing the bell. She like looks at the camera and she's like, oh, I had a dream last night. Throughout the film, like she's been like trying to like... She's trying to have a drink with her favourite rock and roll star. Yeah, yeah. He's like very like... I don't even know how to describe he's like he's star. like um he's like axiom in <laughs> yeah, Dakar. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Obviously in whiteface as well, but you know this time it's a sign of vivacity rather than. <laughs> and oh, this is just a, one of the most amazing things I've ever seen on film sure. as a technical achievement. Um, she's like, oh, and on I the fretboard d- as well. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I dreamt I married um, Mickey, the guitarist, um, and then it cuts to like this like fixed point in the room. Um, there's a window in the background he's just like in the fall room like playing the guitar she's in like a back room in the background like all these are like Vermeer compositions as well or like Kamashai or something like that and he's just like shredding and then you realise that um, the exterior is moving and then you realise they're like on a track and it's mad the house is on a train it's like some studio ghibli shit it's actually insane the train pulls into a station and there's adoring fans they do this all in the studio with like trees like tree cutouts like on like tracks going past on pulleys and stuff like that so tactile it's just such an extremely moving scene um, and you hate that kind of music as well. So I'm... Yeah, so cheesy. I don't know how it works for me. <laughs> it's over- It's like the best example of it, though, where it's just yeah. totally emotionally overwhelming, you know? There's no wind in this guy's hair. It's in quite like a demure, like, small room, but playing epic music. Then the whole crowd, there's like a cast of hundreds, like, appear at their window, like, wanting an autograph. And again, they did this... I'm not sure whether they did this in his studio. One or two things they've shot in, like, one of his friends is also a producer that has a studio. They've shot some of the slightly larger scenes. The the Charles XII scene they shot in there. The um, Songs from the Second Floor train station sequence they shot in an old hangar um, and turned it into a... A train station, which is just mad. And it's one of the most realistic looking parts of the whole trilogy as well. I think it really looks like a train station. And just the craft in these films is 
Truly staggering. Tell me some of your favourite scenes, some of your favourite moments, like aesthetics, you know. Where to begin? Yeah. I've loved spending the last couple weeks in Roy World deep diving because there's just where to begin. I think even the trivial ones, though, are like momentous. Just like a fat old man sitting in his kitchen and like his wife's like sort of scowling at him or okay. something. Like it's this sort of shit is like just, it works. I tell you what, as a nice, also from you the living, but the total opposite of the guitar solo moment yeah. is just a man sitting in his he's part of a band small like polka band or like a marching band and he's just got his bass drum and he's just practicing the bass drum alone in his room and he's like counting it really hard and he's like okay yeah two three four one and then he like <laughs> stops for 16 <laughs> bars and then he hits it again and then he gets the beat going or whatever you see the band like play the tune like in so full. you missed the best bit of that scene someone like he's just like going in done Dun, dun, dun. Playing a dun, massive bass drum dun, in a tiny dun. apartment. And then someone like slams the door shut out of view behind him. Like, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. I feel like this shit really resonated with me. <laughs> I'm trying to practice, trying to practice accordion. Yeah, literally any instrument. Yeah. Yeah. Well, at least you don't have a downstairs neighbor because yeah, that sequence is followed by his downstairs neighbor who's like banging on the ceiling with a broom, but then the ceiling, you know, yeah. all the Which is like falls um, uh, one of his insurance ads. Yeah, definitely. Um, <laughs> But just the image of that guy practicing the bass drum by himself is fire. I love the last image of songs from the second floor. Maybe a big one to be thrown out so early. I mean, that's again like an eight minute sequence where oh like God, yeah, the dude takes insane. all his unsold crucifixes to the scrapyard. He sees people walking from like the far, far distance and you're standing in like a junkyard full of like giant crucifixes, graven images or whatever. It's this is one of the few scenes that they shot outside in like sort of modified exterior. Well, you had to because another big reference to filmmaking or whatever, it ends the same way that a very famous image from Abel Gonces' Jacques, all the war dead are coming up out of the fields, out of the graves and like walking towards you and like a real haunted, you know, they're always with you. They're a part of the world as well. But that is just an insane feat of filmmaking yeah, when you're seeing them. Iconographically, the choreography, just the poetics of that whole sequence are just astonishing too much we'll keep them going I'll, yeah go and take these seamless yeah, right out this um i've never <laughs> felt more like peter wallen before yeah, you know yeah. but these it does bear these are the kind of films where it was actually worth our time writing down every image and like trying to draw out a semiotic structure it's a good feeling folks and we'll have these forever you know yeah if anyone wants say, them i would say i did not write seamless for a swedish love story in gilliap that we'll be discussing at the end of the episode because they just don't demand the same level of um you know it's hard, analysis it's hard to believe they're from the same filmmaker but we'll we'll explore that i love the dude getting sword in half again like the like the tablecloth trick going wrong there's a magician who appears in a lot of scenes this is in songs on the second floor the dude is like he's performing magic at a big dinner with loads of people in suits and he's like oh can i have a volunteer one guy comes up so he, he gets the guy in the box that's obviously got two halves in it and he's gonna cut him in half and you just know yeah, you, you know. know. And oh. then he's, you know, he starts going down and down and down. And he, he's like, ah! Yeah. ah! <laughs> <laughs> oi! 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 <laughs> um, <laughs> um, that was the first scene they shot for Songs from the Second Floor. Whoa. And they couldn't get it right at first. Like, Roy is a very sort of... What do you mean of, they couldn't get it Roy right? Roy is like a very sort of emote... Like, he's... All these films have come out of like sketches and stuff like that and like but it's all about like how he feels when when he's watching the scene be recorded there's stuff like you know he'll laugh like 
he'll, on the 50th yeah tape. yeah stuff like that like he'll be cracking up at bits of dialogue like when he's heard it for like the 50th time which is just hilarious and very endearing i think um but yeah they just it just wasn't clicking so then he likes um made them like change the floor of the stage and like he was like just doing all these like little adjustments and then that ultimately is the first scene the guy that plays the magician um like so many of these acts i feel like we haven't stressed this enough i mean i feel like i literally only mentioned it in passing quoting that um Lindvist, uh, description of his style is that these are pretty much all non-professional actors amateur actors people that he's worked with in ads that like they've just like sort of um cast like for their you know, face ran, ran, yeah, yeah for their like, face like in sort of broigelian fashion sure and and, yeah in the way an old master would just like have like a sort of stock of interesting looking bodies and faces there's always like a sort of uncanny quality to the whole thing um which includes the performances as well and the makeup helps yeah 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 yeah. by giving you the sense that these people could be ghosts or whatever (laughs) i love the um you know the old lady who's about to die and she's like hold and her family around her in the hospital bed and she's like holding her jewels and they're they're like mom you can't take that you can't take your you can't take that with you and she's like fuck off like pushing them all away i love the boy i guess this is the humor is so important man i feel like that's something that we haven't really stressed either but these are comedy films you know yeah yeah i I laugh so much first and foremost in a way just while we're doing the pigeon the girl who does the title drop she's like singing a song on stage such a bizarre scene a talent show yeah i love it though where she's like you know and there's also a pigeon in a natural history museum at the start of the film and it's also a reference to Bruegel's Hunters in the Snow. There's a pigeon right at the foreground of that painting looking at all the work being done and I guess trying to look beyond that. Yeah, all these are historical references are central, but it's not just that. As I said, there's poetry, um, Songs from the Second Floor, which I think it's fair to say is probably overall both of our favourite. Mm. I think it's, um, you know... Not gilly up all the way. <laughs> but Songs from the Second Floor is structured around um, sort of paraphrasings of the poet um, Cesar Vallejo's. Been reading his stuff, it's incredible. You've got to get involved. I'd never even heard of him. This 1934 poem called Stumbling Between Two Stars, which is a sort of sort of parody of uh, the Beatitudes. Yeah. So it's like, blessed are the... Uh, blessed are those who sit down. Don't you need know. to tell me, you know. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah Cesar Vallejo, I fucking recommend this shit, honestly. Yeah, the point is, um, it's not just about these visual references um there are sort of like literary uh references and techniques Definitely. like repetition and stuff like that that he incorporates i would still say bruegel is pretty important to draw in i mean he's obviously been super influential on like loads and loads and loads of filmmakers including the mill and the cross guy or whatever tarkovsky <laughs> the same painting um, appears in solaris drowning by numbers yeah. um features the bruegel picture children's games yeah, i think yeah, is yeah. what it's called which is just like shows like Obviously, the thing with these royal pictures is like a landscape, and then it packs in lots of like vignettes, so to speak, little episodes, symbolic things happening, um, much in the same way that these Anderson films do, but like stretched out across scenes. I guess, yeah, Bruegel is like filmmaker's favorite painter or whatever, but I think he is instructive because he was like a secular painter, right? A big, even though I think every film has a sequence in a church or a sequence with a priest, but it's still, you know looking at people's normal work life yeah definitely philosophical grand themes definitely and religious yeah and the way those um you know everyday 
sort of quotidian experiences relate to institutions like the church, the state, the military, the banks, the scientists. Gales. Um, <laughs> Gales, yeah. Anyway, as but, I was saying 10 minutes ago, the girl was talk, telling, about, telling the story about the, the pigeon and yeah. they're like, why did the pigeon have so much time just reflecting on like looking at the people and like thinking about their world? And it's like, oh, because he didn't have any money because yeah. the girls aren't. Which again brings back how incisive these films are all about, you know, social democracy and the welfare state yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah. Even when they're actually about, you know, someone's trousers falling down. I think that scene's really interesting actually especially the way it relates to songs from the second floor which is about a poet that cannot operate or be heard in the modern like individualist neoliberal world the girl gets up on the stage to read a poem about a pigeon sat on a branch reflecting on existence but that uh, sort of degenerates into a sort of interrogation by the sort of compare of the talent show where he's like oh what are you here to do I'm here to read a poem. What's the poem about? It's about a pigeon sat on a branch. What was he doing? Reflecting yeah. on existence. You know, it's not, she doesn't read a poem. She describes, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's, <laughs> um, again, just like an interesting example of like these tensions between like art and like sort of institutional interference. But this is also a concern for Roy, like throughout his life. Song from the Second Floor is an extremely autobiographical film, right? It's I think about, they all are, man. Yeah. But this way. one, especially where it's about a salesman, he has a disaster, a career disaster where he like tortures his, you know, place of business in like a yeah. insurance scam. We'll talk about Gilead later. Yeah. He has to resort to selling crucifixes and stuff like that. And, you know, scorning his own son yeah. for not producing anything of, yeah. like, commercial value. Not to say this is what Roy Anderson was doing, but... It's an interesting, like, scenes... dualism or, like, dialectic because, like, it's, he's not necessarily either the, the poet's son or the businessman entrepreneur yeah, dad. Like, he's both, like... <laughs> yeah, 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 he's both. <laughs> um, and that is the tension that he's, like, sort of teasing out. Inside Lewin Davis, really good film. Don't know, have you ever seen it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Quite similar colour palette, actually. Well, for sure. But there's yeah. that damning scene where he meets with the record label executive after he's oh, got God, his like, yeah. whole life's work in his hands. He's like, I don't see a profit margin yeah. here or whatever. F. Murray Abraham or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a savage scene. The yeah. the main scene, I guess, in the film, yeah. This is a concern all throughout. Songs from the Second Floor is named after the studio is on the second floor of this building. Yeah. Or, or he lives on the, he second, lives on the floor. second floor. Yeah, like yeah. The studio. Um, just in terms of like talking about like funding and stuff, like I guess um, obviously he made quite a lot of money from his ads, like enough to live on and like buy the studio. Um, but at the same time, like he's always had a fight to get funding for these, including like you know, making these like very philosophical funding pitches to the Swedish Film Institute that are like, you know, impenetrable and don't include a script and stuff like that. The sort I'd probably end up writing, you know, and then like having like a very sort of like antagonistic relationship with them. When he was at film school, Bergman was the, um, the sort of managing director of the sort of Swedish Film Institute school. Mm. And, you know, they had a very antagonistic relationship as well because mm. like, he didn't get you know, it. he didn't get it. And Anderson just wanted to make like radical documentaries about like tennis. Yeah, the like Zimbabwe, <clears throat> Sweden tennis. Yeah, it was like an apartheid. There's just always so much to think about with these films. Like it's actually sorry, that was tangential. I can't remember where uh, we where so we were. You're like, you're um, like Roy Anderson and yeah, going yeah, on these flights yeah, of fancy, yeah. you know, down all these parts. Yeah. I want to talk about the scene in Song from the Second Floor, set in the Grand Hotel, straight after the this epic sacrifice yeah. midsummer-esque moment yeah. that we talked about before. There's a really old man 
who like can't stand up and he's like propping himself up the bar he's like getting sick on the floor yeah. and there's an enormous like shepherd's crook leaning against the wall yeah. when does this scene take place is it in the modern era yeah 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 but i mean it's like a uh, sort of weimar-esque like sort of degeneracy is, of like thing, institutions yeah. and yeah. like the pillars of society these characters have literally sacrificed youth as like a sort of bounty um, a sort of tribute for the market gods, you know. Mm. Characters throughout this film, in the background, you can see sort of flagellants, like people whipping themselves in business suits, going through the street because the stock market's fucked, you know. And then ultimately they do the sacrifice. And then there's this sort of like very like decadent Grand Hotel sequence where like, yeah, they're all like even more sickly and venal than they were in the first place yeah it's funny there's a there's a moment i think it's in the documentary where he's talking about like why would you spend your last day on earth whipping yourself like it doesn't make any sense <laughs> it doesn't make any sense to me if you really believe the apocalypse has come but as i say very apocalyptic film big time very it's big. like a millenarianism you know yeah, yeah. like um the millennium bug you know yeah. neoliberalism <laughs> glad there's some some people Fighting the good fight long into their 70s. Yeah. There's more. Yeah, honestly, I feel like it's not necessarily instructive, but I feel like I could just keep describing sequences that I found either thought-provoking or pleasurable to watch. The Racist Barber is one of my favourite sequences. Um, That was great. Basically, like a sort of, I guess, like Turkish immigrant um, barber. And then... Barber's not the racist one, yeah, that's why. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then the guy's just, like, being, like, a dickhead to him. And then he just, like... Straight down the middle of his head. And then he's indignant leaving bad TripAdvisor reviews all over town. That's interesting. I I was wondering where I was going to get to bringing up Aki Karasmaki, another Nordic filmmaker. Mm. Not a Scandinavian filmmaker. Finnish. As listeners to the uh, Kermode and Mayo show would have learned. Aki Karasmaki from Finland. I really like his films. I think he literally makes the same film again and again, pretty mm. much. Like from the, if you watch *The Man Without the Past* and then you watch *La Havre* or *The Other Side of Hope*, they're extremely similar. They just have like slightly different details standing in for like essentially telling the broadly same story. It's also about alienated people. It's also got sort of like a weird, like out of time, like rock and roll soundtrack most of the time, and it's in like very drab rooms. But I guess his films are almost more like Gilead than they are like this trilogy. But the sense of humour is very similar mm. in his films, I think. But seeing one, you've seen them all, honestly. Leningrad Cowboys. That's not like the rest of them, though, is it? Sort of. Not really. Yeah. No, because they're all about... Half his films are about, like, struggling musicians. Need to get more involved with it. Yeah, I mean, You the Living is very similar, and it's about, you know, struggling musicians with no audience <laughs> or whatever, and, like, drab walls and, like, dim lighting and stuff like that. Although maybe he's, he's a bit more Hollywood with his lighting. But totally the film's very similar. I cannot remember why I started talking about Karasmaki. <laughs> I think just as a counterpoint. One thing, I don't know when I'm going to be able to bring this in, but I always find it amusing when Roy treats this subject. The way he represents sex, I think, is always quite funny. <laughs> like, I feel like there are quite a lot of sex scenes in his films. Not Maybe not in every film, but, like, you know, it's part of life, and, you know, he treats it with the same sort of humour. Mm-hmm cynicism and humanity that he does the rest of it like there's always a distracted partner in the yeah coupling. yeah so in um you the living um one i think it's like the tuba player is being you know his like 
buxom wife is on top of him wearing his like sort of military style hat um looking some like valkyrie or something and then he's just there like talking about how the bank called and like (laughs) how like he's been putting every time i'd play a little marching band concert i put my money in the bank and they've called me it's all gone (laughs) and then she's just there like oh (laughs) oh." yeah i mean it's classic It's too much. To think that like most of these sequences take about a month to set up in his studio yeah. as well, even if some of them only last like fifteen seconds yeah. and there's like one job to them. Um, incredible achievement. Yeah. These I feel like seven yeah. years to make and he's working yeah. on them constantly. I feel like in about endlessness it it actually it does push the sort of banality of sequences even more. There are yeah, some yeah. where I was like There's only a six year gap between that and the pigeon loss and maybe <laughs> took one year off that he would spend, you know, really yeah. hacking out the editing. Hacking out the final 15 minutes. So, as we said, after the Living Trilogy... Roy put out his most recent film about endlessness, which came out this year, premiered last year, as you said. That was at Venice as well. Yeah. yeah. But the story of them trying to get it out is a big part of the documentary. Yes. Cancelling premieres and stuff. Although that documentary has a happy ending. This has the huge feeling of like a final film and like it's a recapitulation, like revisiting of certain themes. This film's like an hour 15. Yeah, super short, easy watch. I feel uh, the others are maybe like hour and a half. Maybe the longest one is like 100 minutes. Yeah. So it's significantly more compact than the preceding films. It's got such a delicate balance, though, I think. You couldn't really upset it. Although, obviously, you could if you, you know, if you didn't manage to film one of these scenes. I think this is one of the ones that he actually ended up reshooting more. He found it significantly more difficult than the other ones to make, I think. And it is slightly less cohesive, I think. It's way more broad. And even though they're the same themes as the other films, they're treated in a slightly different way. And it's kind of brought out more of the juxtaposition, I guess, between the sequences. But it is based around a narration. And it's supposedly an adaptation of the 1001 Arabian Nights, like the Scheherazade. Yeah, I'm so, not sure that's actually true necessarily. I, I think, think it's he more said like it in inspired. An yeah, I think it's like I realised that narration can be like a tool or whatever. Do you think it's it was like, the classic like <laughs> introduced at the end to make it make sense or whatever? It's like, oh, by the way, this is uh, yeah. I mean, look, it's an interesting uh, sort of rhetorical device that the narration uses. Uh, a woman's voice sort of narrates the scenes by being like, "I saw this. I saw. I saw a man who." I saw a man that was wrong. <laughs> I saw... Um, a woman who loved champagne. Yeah. I saw a woman who had a problem with her shoe. You got one image, a nice one of that story told to you. Yeah. Although it's quite inconsistent. The narrator only comes up like 10 times and then other times it just jumps around a bit more. Yeah, for sure. It's weird because obviously all of these images speak for themselves to a certain mm-hmm. extent. So I couldn't quite pick out the sort of governing logic for having narration for some of them. Maybe it's a thesis about how arbitrary narration itself is and how it functions especially because the narration here is so prosaic and it's like as you said it's formulaic repetitious i saw this happen i saw this happen but yeah it is arbitrary ultimately and it only takes place for half of the vignettes that make up this film a lot of his most beautiful sequences though 
I think, are contained within. I think it has a slightly different colour palette that definitely contributes to its, like, sure. autumnal mood, you know? Well, uh, the skies in his films, and I guess, you know, there's no, there's never any natural light apart from in two sequences, but there is still a world of difference. You've got the scene of that girl overwatering the plant outside yeah. the restaurant or whatever, which is fully indoors, but feels mad different to the very similar sequences in The Pigeon. Yeah, because it's, like, warm. Um, yeah. And even though it's like conveying a sort of idea about like alienation and loneliness, I think it maybe compares to the sequences in A Pigeon Sat on a Branch mm-hmm. with this sort of uniformed guy that like keeps like missing like meetings with people. Sure. And there's a very similar exterior shot where the guy's like looking in this restaurant window, calls his phone, you've got no messages, leaves no message, oh, like there must have been a mix up. Like these are very different ways of exploring like loneliness in like Mm. using like pretty much the exact same set and it just seems like less cynical but the film it does have some cynical (laughs) notes or tones you know about you know but do you think the film's endlessness is hopeless or hopeful hmm hopeless no i got it's both i guess it's both it's it's (laughs) a a true existential (laughs) sisyphean thing of that where it's not necessarily one way or the other you know but I think much like the title drop in Pigeons Hat on the Branch, which just has the child telling the story, this has like two students like discussing some like thermodynamics thing. So like the appearances of like Hitler and Jesus in this film speak to that permeation, but so does like, oh, your car breaking down or like some problem with your shoe or something like that. That's the constant quality, though, these juxtapositions. That is what these films are, you know, and this film, like, encapsulates it. There's also a nice structuring device where, like, in the first scene and the last scene, you can see, like, the cranes are flying, you know, like, in the background. Sure. I thought that was, like, the end of You the Living, where it has the sort of planes, like, descending in formation in, like, a phalanx. Yeah, I thought that was a really weird ending, but (laughs) I feel like it does make sense. It's a nice beginning, though. The looming of war is... Or the memory of it in various ways mm. um, as like a past, present and future phenomenon is like throughout all these films. That's like, you know, in this film, the first scene is an astonishing sequence of like, this is, a, sorry, A Pigeon was the first, the film before this was the first one they shot on digital. This is the first one where they use a green screen, I think. Maybe they used it a bit in Pigeon as well. Um, but like technically it's different, you know, or it builds on like the possibilities of like his studio setting. But that first sequence of, like, a man and woman, like, flying over a bombed-out city is just, like, crazy. There's also a scene where some parents visit, like, a war grave. Their son's war grave, that Mm. is. There's a guy, like, a busker whose legs have been blown off by a landmine, as well as these, like, confrontations with, like, historical, like, atrocities. (sighs) Living with war as a... But there are, like, hopeful notes as well. Definitely. I mean, that floating couple over... Cologne or whatever. Yeah. They're in such a loving embrace or whatever, you know. It's yeah. ridiculous. It's a crazy image. <laughs> yeah. And like really an embrace, I guess, of like the sort of symbolist um influence like William Blake or something. Yeah, like, and yeah. like all this like um early twentieth century like <clears throat> Scandinavian painting as well that's like I guess like sort of like magical, you know. It's the idea. But he uh, like always contrasts that with like daily existence, you know. Sure. Mundanity. But that couple is just like 
an old intern of his and like his prop one of the like prop guys yeah. or whatever yeah which is nice. yeah again um the documentary being a human person tracks i guess the history of his career but mainly the production of this film so mm. there are lots of like really interesting insights into the sort of technical and like emotional processes that go into the creation of these films it's a difficult film i enjoyed watching it between viewings of about endlessness what was the audience reception like at the genesis yeah it was good people weren't like screaming or whatever <laughs> i was laughing quite loud at the scene with the wine i thought that was fucking jokes to be mm. honest Again, always these like scenes that like are reminiscent of the sort of scenarios that, that he'd have in his ads. Nick Pinkerton in his write-up of The Pigeon from Sight and Sound a few years ago, he compared him to this American cartoonist who did The Far Side, which is like a famous like one panel thing. There's just or like, you know, these kind of like one panel cartoons or whatever that make some sort of almost like bordering on like observational humour. Yeah. But it's cool to tie massive philosophical heft to that as well, I think, mm. you know. That documentary was really interesting. We'll talk about it more, I think. But it's mad to think that the honor killing sequence, which I think he shot three times, was the last thing he shot for this film. That's a challenging sequence. Troublesome moment, uh, yeah. I guess all of these scenes start, like, in medio res. It cuts to the action unfolding. Someone's already wailing. Or, yeah, you know. and, and in this instance, um, like, it's a very horrifying domestic tableau. Extremely peak. Right in the middle of the film. But the fact that that has sequences of true horror and true like beauty, yeah. like more so than any of his films, really, you know, it's kind of his most extreme, both mm. for the looseness of it and certain of his images. And it feels like all the while he was making it, it's very teed up as like his last film or whatever. Yeah. And it is like an exploration. It's cool that like he must have been doing something right where your last thing you're just like re-exploring themes you've already talked about 100 percent. it's a recapitulation it's a it's another statement of the same manifesto you know yeah but i rate that it's better than seven women <laughs> well for sure <laughs> the difficulty in reviewing these films is you just want to go on and on and like relive your experiences and like re-explore there's so many nice moments in this film you know yeah still it's so true. It's so true. It's hard not to just run through the list because I guess in a normal, quote marks, normal film, mm. obviously the way it's edited and the way the story is told, bits in the film that you'd fixate on as a viewer would be like exciting or interesting moments like... In Money shots. <laughs> well, yeah, or like set pieces or even, or, you know, they're doesn't need to be loud ones it could be quiet moments you know but like those are the things that stand out from like the whole mm. whereas in these films the whole is just something completely different <laughs> um it is like walking through a gallery or like a series of prints and reflecting on like how these things relate to each other and how they relate to the space that they're being presented in it's just it's real, real art cinema, but also, you know, expert commercial maker. So these, <laughs> yeah. so these bits look good in the trailer and on the poster or whatever. You sure, know. But look, all the old masters in the early modern period were like rampant capitalists. Sure. Sorry, not capitalists necessarily, but like, you know, entrepreneurs. Yeah. So. Well, it's cool that he has a lot of creative freedom, you know. His films aren't made by a Swiss, the Swiss film board. They're made by like a German, French, like co-production, I think. Or some Swiss. like <laughs> the the Rembrandts Swiss. in the vault. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's cool. 
it's super cool, I think. I think he's a filmmaker with huge integrity and like an extremely vital, poetic vision. Be a shame to see him go, so it's good to know that he's uh, working on something else. It'll take another <laughs> six years. That documentary, Being a Human Person... Yeah, let's talk about that it, for a bit. It was really cool for conveying like the amount of work that goes into it from a number of different people as well. 100%. I think one thing is like... We're talking about Anderson today as like an auteur, you know. Um, it's like the workshop, like an old painter. Or... Exactly, man. <laughs> exactly. And when you go to the gallery, like half of them are painted by like The Apprentice, you sure. know. But it does emphasize how collaborative it is and how he's built like a community, you know. And people are really invested in the craft that he sort of represents and is perpetuating. And yeah, it's really, really beautiful. I found it very moving actually seeing the sort of spirit of their workplace, you know. Definitely. And they're all looking out for him, you know. The other side to this film, which is different ethical questions to the ethics of, like, the Roy Anderson films or whatever. (laughs) Well, for sure. The other side to this documentary is, like, him struggling with alcoholism. And he says, like, oh, he only got, like, seriously into it after he won the Golden Lion for the Pigeon or whatever, and he completed the trilogy, and he'd sort of, like, found that determination or whatever. But, you know, this film was made, like, under the... about endlessness was made under the heavier influence or whatever and i don't know they're these kind of like copy scenes but i don't know if they're like (laughs) that's so true man i don't know if they're i don't know if they're like i think they're staged it's it's like catfish or something isn't it yeah it's really horrible it's deep because it's like through the crack in the door or whatever you just see him like but then also as he's making the film he's just got his little like 35 cl like glass bottle and it's like he's so attached to them it's really sad to bear witness to, in a way. The film is set out to make you think, like, everyone's really concerned for him or whatever. He goes to rehab. And about endlessness, I guess, some critics may be a bit uncharitable and say that the sort of more elliptical structure of about endlessness and um, frequency of, like, black cards, which are a pretty, you know, powerful thing in the film, I think. It's been a feature of all his work, but it's pretty. they're pretty heavy on the black cards. Deployed, like, properly in about endlessness could be, like... You know, a crutch. Yeah, a bit more like laps, but I think that's all right as well. I think I it's think an aesthetic it's, decision. I think you it's know? super I deliberate. Think, but... I think you could uh, cut it the exact same without the black cards, and you know, don't think it's necessarily. Yeah, when you get your Peter Wallen on, though, you know, you can see what function they serve. Well, for sure, they're um... always around the most like serious. Yeah, 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 yeah. They're a form of punctuation for sure. And look, his work's always been influenced by a silent sensibility as well. And I think it relates to that. And those guys were drinking beer anyway. So <laughs> yeah, for sure. All th- filmmakers. <laughs> yeah. I think being a human person's treatment of Anderson's drinking is a bit salacious. I think so. Um, I'd like to see if he gives Marcus Mumford the same ride. For real. I, I appreciate that, obviously, it's all collaborative work that they're doing. And, you know, there's like a family vibe. It's hard to talk about, but I just don't, yeah, I don't think they treated it that well. And I don't think he has anything to apologise for. Word. I have a problem with it because they treat it like it's like cinema verite, but then why would they be shooting it through like a little nicely expressionist crack through the door or whatever? And then he's also carrying it around. I think he's pretty cute with it, you know. Someone brings in one and they're like, he's like, oh, how did they know it's like the one I like or whatever. You're always brandishing that. You're an advertisement for this fucking schnapps or whatever he's drinking <laughs> or whiskey, I hope it's but it's a huge part of the documentary and it's sad to see but it's calm i reckon yeah i think it was an attempt to like try and complicate its biographical subject 
which fell flat from a sort of uh, perspectival view. Who's to I, say alcoholism is real? He also has, you know, the sequence where, like, in the documentary, he's like, oh, they're really going to send me to prison for this scene or whatever, and it's the priest. It's like an amazingly set-up sequence of, like, a priest drinking most of the communion wine in the sacristy and, like, looking fucking sad about it and then going out to do communion. Great scene, but, you know, it's deep. But it's, a, it's an interesting thing to have in a film about such a wonderful artist, you know. And seeing the creative process like in full flow. For sure. It's a documentary. Yeah, it's a fascinating depiction. Um, one of my favourite filmmaking documentaries is um, the Studio Ghibli in the Kingdom of Dreams and Madness, or maybe it's the other way around. That's just a fascinating depiction of both the sort of creative sort of aspects of filmmaking and the sort of labour questions and the sort of labour relations between the sort of master and the apprentices, like, it is interesting. And I think that's the appropriate analogy to use, as we've already established, you know. Like, he is a master, and it's very interesting to see his techniques, you know, being explicated mm. in a pretty exploitational documentary film. <laughs> It's funny to think that way more people saw that documentary in the cinema than saw about endlessness in the cinema. That's mad. We've sold. I tried to go see it at the uh, Rio. We've sold out. I guess even though it like really, it's about making about endlessness. It illuminates the production of all his previous films. It interviews like what's the name? Fred Scott. He had a lot of access to the Studio Twenty Four premises and like personnel. And, you know, he's talking to the Hungarian guy that's been his, like, cinematographer forever. But I can't remember his name. And, like, yeah, all the production assistants and stuff. Like, you just get such a good insight into it. There's a really good clip of Roy Anderson talking to Ruben Ostland, a filmmaker who said that he's more influenced by Anderson's ads perfectly conceivable i think this guy always puts like top 10 funny videos as like his film of the year you know he's always saying he's way more influenced by like youtube clips than uh, cinema although my favorite bit in the square is a very andersonian moment the bit with like the the cleaner hoovering up the whole art exhibition mm. in the square yeah that's like, very much like that I and i think show. aesthetically ruben Austin's work is very indebted to anderson definitely style, actually Just, we watched play, play yeah. for um film club a long time ago steph picked it yeah back in the early days of the now teenaged uh, film club you should have been there uh, for <laughs> yeah that's a great movie play loved that yeah you know i guess it's a sort of like verite sort of subject or like lens but the actual camera the way it's placed and like the setup is like very indebted i think to anderson's style true i guess the location shooting of that film makes it mad different anderson's talking about like the virtues of like landscape over portrait not that like apart from like quibby films like no one's really making portrait films or whatever but i you know when trying to pick my film of the year i couldn't try and decide the virtues are like the close-ups in like Pedro Costa's film versus this where it's all about the rooms and like the landscape and it's gonna be a tough question you're gonna to have to listen to film grades to see where <laughs> yeah, I'm at for sure that will be an interesting one I love to watch Roy talk is what I'm trying to say really yeah for sure I think he's a communicator and like a theorist he's got a nice way of making these like incredibly grand points or whatever for sure he's extremely well read and cites 
We've mentioned some of his references, his intellectual references, people like Martin Buber, Lukacs. You know, he's part of this, like, intellectual framework, you know, and, like, he communicates that well in interviews. Like, it's a pleasure to watch him talk with his hip flask in tow. Ratings. Good on him. Anything else on about Endlessness? I loved it. I'm going to be watching it for years to come, getting a lot of pleasure out of it and a sobering degree of horror as well, which I appreciate. Good to see the master at work. Some really nice frames, some nice people in bars, drinking and remembering and dreaming. An interesting part of being a human person and the Roy Anderson story in general is the trajectory of his career from being a sort of wonderkind, his first you know, feature film was a massive success and his second feature film was a massive disappointment. I hate to always be the guy who's talking in like commercial terms. But no, but it's instructive. But a Swedish love extent. story made 60 million at the, <laughs> at the box office. And it was, yeah, really widely celebrated, you know. It's an interesting film. Yeah. I mean, we've only spoken about his mature work and, like, the very specific aesthetic conditions that, like, sort of govern it. Um, Yeah, A Swedish Love Story and Gilead both have very different styles. A Swedish Love Story was a film he was signed up for uh, by, like, a Swedish production company while he was in film school. Uh, in the late 60s it came out in 1970 um i guess on the surface level its title refers to uh this like young teenage love story you know a couple of like little aryan kids um but it's sort of like song of uh innocence and experience sort of situation as much as dwelling on the you know tender romance of these teens like it's interested in like sort of social background of their families and yeah, Anderson said uh, on his website, there's a quote that says, their families are the lost generation of the welfare society. And I guess like at the time he was like coming out of student politics, right? And, you know, at the beginning of Swedish Love Story, they're like at like an old people's home and like these people are like shunted aside, basically basically the same way that we like treat old people in like modern Western society you know like one of the main things in Anderson's work is that like there's not that much like humanity often in how it's handled Mm -hmm. in like the 90s one of the other books that he made uh, was this like sort of anthology of like sort of humanist writings to try and encourage school-aged kids to like go into like care work right and yeah sort of rectify like sort of like callousness (laughs) well it's good for the soul yeah, for real. That's like the tip of the iceberg. Like, it doesn't just, you know, their families are, like, from different social backgrounds, from, like, the city and the countryside. There are all these, like, class tensions. There's loads going on, but it is, like, a way more generic film. And, like, quite Bergman-y, ironically. I found it really straightforward. I don't really have too much to say about it, even though people seem to love this film. At the time, people really loved it. Yeah, it was a huge hit. I guess it was, like, sort of, like, very modish, like it's a colour film. Um, And it does have like, you know, a lot of nice zooms and close-ups and soft focus cinematography. Yeah, Yeah, it's... And, you know, 
a blossoming romance with some social themes. But it's not an exceptional film. No. Uh, I think he was actually sort of repulsed by the success of, <laughs> of this film. There's still things that I liked about it. I like the cinematography. Again, very Renoir vibes. It kind of reminded me of like Picnic on the Grass, the way it looked with this, like, you know, just nice photography. And I guess people, you know, must have been like, oh, enough of this Bergman guy. Like, he's just given us all this miserable, you know, nuclear, you know, end of the world shit. And now mm. we've just got... Yeah, it's a form of existentialism. It's a lot, lot less, like, hand-wringing. Sure. Yeah, I don't think it's like... No, no uh, I feel no, like you no, do no, it a huge a disservice. Like, it's not... <laughs> it's nowhere near as penetrating as le- as his later work. Maybe but you I think just it still underrate exists. the notebook, man. Maybe you watch it again, <laughs> you'd be like, fair enough. I had a lot to say. Yeah, I, I was sort of indifferent to A Swedish Love Story. I watched it after having watched the Living Trilogy right. as basically an academic exercise. I can see why it was successful when it came out, though. Apparently it was very influenced by Czech New Wave. Yeah, why not? I'd say... <laughs> <laughs> I guess Czech New Wave is associated with, like, sort of, like, ironisation of, like, these, like, institutions. Yeah. And it's all, like, sort of... De-seriousness. And, yeah. yeah. Which is definitely a vibe as well. I would say Gilead reminded me more of Foreman from what I've seen of his, like, 60s watch. Fair. I think the only early one I've seen is The Fireman's Ball. Good movie. Didn't remind me of that. This is an extremely oppressive film. So really the anti... <laughs> Gilead is the complete antithesis of a Swedish love story. And as I said, he, yeah. was, he was repulsed by the success of it and was like, no. He didn't actually want to make Gilead. He wanted to make a film called Two Brothers and a Sister. And it was going to be like really long and like poetic. And the studio were like, no. So he went to another studio and made Gilead as a sort of compromise, which is ironic because it's an extremely uncompromising film. His longest film, I think, is just over two hours. And yeah, it's the story of this guy, very nondescript guy, <laughs> literally without a personality, uh, that gets a job in a sort of fading, sort of pretentious hotel. That's it. Pretty much. Yeah. There's a, 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 For me, the main reference was like, I don't know, like Dostoevsky, sure. but... I don't know. I guess mine would be the Bresson adaptations of Dostoevsky. It is this kind of flow. There's a lot to it, though. Long shots, drab colour schemes. It's proper slow cinema. I just enjoy to think about this film. It was (laughs) such a flop. Like, people were absolutely hating it, making jokes on TV for, like, 30 years about how, like, oh, at least it's not Gilead or whatever. (laughs) Like, this is the worst shit of all time. This is, like rude box or something i don't know anson's films engage with alienation maybe like no other filmmaker but this is by far the most alienating uh it's it's challenging to watch i kind of love it though yeah i've watched it twice in preparation for this pod and (laughs) i'll watch it again you know yeah it takes you to a certain place if you like twin peaks especially if you like the sweeping up scene at the end of one of the episodes (laughs) Um, it is definitely like a fuck you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a <laughs> serious middle finger to the audience, the funders, the studio. If you like the films of Sai Ming Lang, I'd say also give it a go. I'm sure there's people out there whose favourite Anderson film is Gilead because it captures a vibe. Codename Gilead, one of the great codename films like Tenet and uh, Swordfish. It does have a fantastic tune. Yeah that you hear about eight or nine times keeps coming back. I've had it in my head the whole time, even more than the Battle Hymn of the Republic. 
best tune of the Roy Anderson filmography. Yeah, th- there are really interesting technical things in this film, actually, that are worth noting. We've already said that the shots are longer and, you know, to a sort of confrontational degree. Um, this was before he got his studio, so it's shot on location. That's the main difference, But I'd say. I think they they make of it what they can. Like, it's interesting, but less, like, controlled and mannered than the later films. You're looking what- at actual, like... De- like faded decay. walls yeah. and stuff actual decay legitimate um, decay. and you do spend i spent a lot of time with this film looking at the walls and stuff like that well there's a lot of time textures. like there's space between the dialogue again to quote that no monologue peep show thing it really is like that where like it almost feels like it's designed to have like a narration where like you can hear their inner life but it's like no Just look at that fucking wall, boy. Sorry, just one more technical thing. I thought, like, the use of music was quite interesting in this film, um, where, like, Mm -hmm. often you hear, not just the theme, but often you hear music. It's normally, like, sort of diegetic, but it's, like, coming from other other rooms. And I feel like that uh, informs the frame really well. Like the use of the Billie Holiday song in About Endlessness, All of Me, when she's, like, sipping the champagne. A lot of people's favourite moment in that film, I think. But his taste in tunes is brilliant, always contributing to this sort of like timelessness coexistence of, you know, when you look at like, especially films set in the 20th century, but are like period pieces, if it's in the 50s, it would have all stuff made in that year Mm. for like a normal Mm. person's house or whatever. Whereas like, there's way more coexistence in most of the places you'll ever go. I'm sure that's the case in Sweden as well. And definitely in Gilead, because I don't know when this, you know, there's no... It's Kafka. Yeah, it's very Kafka-esque in that respect. Like, not necessarily because it's like a desolate, nondescript sort of institution with, like, code-named characters and, like, themes of desperation. Didn't it remind you of Satan Tango? Just a little bit. Didn't it remind you of Barton Fink? Just a little bit. Yeah, it's just, yeah, confrontational and oppressive for the words that come to mind. And confrontational in a different way to the films that actually are trying to get you to think about something. Because I think this is just trying to get you to, like, dwell on the mundanity. We haven't even really spoken about the idea of, like, spectatorship in these films. It's, like, really important. Especially with the points at which the fourth wall is broken. And, like, overall, the way it's framed that, like, is suggestive of, like, participation and stuff like that. No, but it is, like, some real slow cinema shit, you know. I guess yeah, Chantal Ackerman, sure. Jeanne Dillman was, like, a couple of years before Gilead or whatever. But was, like, a film that has been more and more appreciated as years go by. As you see, like, what happens to cinema or whatever. Gilead hasn't really had that thing. There's funny things from Roy where he says, I don't get it because everyone hated my shit but then Kubrick made Barry Lyndon just the year after and everyone loved it like what's the deal I kind of found it hard to point out the similarities I guess the detachment of the camera from the especially the protagonist yeah the characters are just passengers of um sort of external causation in these films like forces Gilliap Ripe for reappraisal. I love to think about it. What order do you think a newcomer should approach these films in then? If I may, I'd say songs from the second floor first. I'd probably say the same. I guess The Pigeon was the first one I saw, but I would have liked to have seen the whole trilogy. You the Living is also on movie right now. And that's yeah. 
pretty nice introduction, I think. Yeah. Maybe Gilead second, so you can just drop yourself in. I think the journey is like so essential for yeah. like appreciating and enjoying his work. I'd say also you can find like a half hour compilation of his ads on YouTube. It's a fine, fine video. Yeah, like to watch it. There are worse ways to spend your time than than watching this shit very funny like the only two times i've ever chosen to watch ads been for the film gray's podcast when i watched the fucking ridley scott john boyega one <laughs> for the last one for a did, aborted did sketch no he's in it he made a lot of adverts though and yeah all the roy anderson yeah. adverts but they're adverts for things i can't even buy so i don't even know what that yeah <laughs> what i'm doing you want to go and buy insurance in the early 80s <laughs> <laughs> honestly i've had such a good time like watching these films i hadn't seen any of them before great you said you wanted to do an episode on the release of about endlessness the specter loomed large though and a pigeon sat on a branch was one that like when it came out it was very much in my sort of consciousness but i didn't watch it, it was always on my radar i'm so happy to have done the deep dive though because it's just been phew, such pleasure Hey, thanks for doing it, Sam. Yeah. He's uh he's the man. Yeah. I love to watch his films and live in his world. Maybe we'll just have to do another Roy Anderson episode in the future where we can just talk about all this shit again because it's nice to yeah, revisit. For sure. There's not we many can... better filmmakers. He's special. And there's so much to say about it. Yeah, I feel like we've honestly just scratched the surface and we've probably been talking for about two hours now. So I think we should probably wrap it up. But he deserves the treatment though. Yeah, I feel like these are films, as you've said, that I'm going to be revisiting over and over again in the future. Show them to your kids. <laughs> I've been Emmett. I'm Sam. Thanks for listening. Yeah, subscribe and give us a thumb up or...